So if you don't know this, we just started last week uh, walking through this letter, this letter of 1 John together. And last week, Dustin started us off, and we're going to continue in that today. We're going chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll head that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word right now. God, thank you for such a blessing to get to, to see what you say, God. God breathed words. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to look at these things. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord. Help us, God, as, as your people. And even those here today that aren't your people, God, I pray that you teach us to do what you commanded, to take heed how we hear. Teach us, God, to hear carefully when your word is spoken. God, we want to be a people who tremble at your word. So, Lord, please help us now. Help, help me, God. As I preach these words, help every hear God, every person hearing the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would make them like those Bereans that receive your word with all readiness. And then search the scriptures to see if it's true. Thank you, God, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me say a few things before we jump right into this text, okay? Uh, I want you to imagine something. Imagine someone coming to you and trying to convince you that a dead person is alive. And I mean really, like there's a dead person. Let's say there's a dead person right there. And you're looking at him. You're looking at this dead body laying there. And someone is trying to convince you that he's alive. He's saying he is. He's alive. And you're going, man, I'm looking. He looks dead to me. They say, no, look, look I, I'll show you his birth certificate. I'll give you this man's birth certificate. You say, that's great. You got a birth certificate, but, but he's dead. They say, look, let me tell you all the things that he has done. Let me tell you, you know, he's done all these things in his life. You say, I, I understand all that, what you're saying, but, but I'm looking at him and he's dead. I'm saying he's not breathing. He has no pulse. He's just laying there, not moving. He is dead. You can't convince me of that. I'm telling you, he's alive. He's alive. All right, whatever. He looks dead to me. He looks dead. A little time goes by, he says... <coughs> My friend I told you about, he, he never likes to hang out and spend time with people who are alive. And I say, I know because he's dead. He's dead. He said, no, he's not dead. Yes, I, he, he's dead. He doesn't like to spend a right time with living people because he's dead. All right, now flip it a little bit. Now imagine someone trying to convince you that you are dead. They come to you and they say, are you alive? You say, am I alive? What do you mean am I alive? You see me moving? You see me breathing? You can feel my pulse? You see me. I'm alive. What do you mean am I alive? What are you talking about? Could you imagine something like that? Trying to convince somebody that a dead person is alive? Or trying to convince somebody or somebody asking you 
if you are alive. And you would never go back. If they ask you that, are you alive? You never say, yes, let me show you my birth certificate. You would just say, look at me. I'm alive. You can tell. You see life on me right now. Okay. And so here's what I'm getting at. For someone to be physically dead or physically alive is not that hard to determine. Everybody agree with that? It's not that hard to determine. But determining if someone is spiritually dead or spiritually alive is a little bit more difficult. Now, it's not as difficult as our culture makes it seem. Our, our culture has no concept of what God's word says about true and false conversion. That there are those who profess the name of God and there are true converts who profess the name of Christ and there are false converts who profess the name of Christ. But our culture has no concept of that. So it's not as hard as our culture makes it. We're just everybody that happens to say they believe in Jesus or happens to say that Christ is their Lord. And we immediately pronounce them saved. Okay, That's the culture. So it's not that hard. But it is a little more difficult to determine if someone is spiritually dead or alive than it is if they are physically dead or alive. Okay. Now, John writes this letter. So we got this letter, 1 John. It's written to help us to learn how to take a spiritual pulse to determine if we are alive or if we are dead. So we take our own spiritual pulse and determine if we are alive or if we are dead. And this is of, cru- I hope you hear that, that this is of crucial importance, right? This is crucial. I mean, this is a lot at stake here. We're talking about life or death spiritually means heaven or hell. There's a lot at stake here. This is a, a big deal. Now, in 1 John, the idea of life is infused all through this letter. I mean, it's everywhere in the letter of First John, let me just give you some examples where life and especially what's called eternal life is deemed extremely important in First John. Chapter one, verse two says it just called Jesus the word of life, life. And it says in verse two, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father. And was manifested to us. That eternal life. It calls in the word of life. And that eternal life which was manifested to us. So eternal life is a big deal. Chapter 2 verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us. Eternal life. Eternal life. Chapter 3 verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. You see that? Death to life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer, listen, has eternal life abiding in him. Eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 5, verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us. Eternal life. The life is in his son. He who has a son has life. He does not have the son. Does not have life. Look at verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see this all the way through the letter? Even at the very end, verse 20, last one I'll read. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So this is, the, this is a, a very, very important 
thing that you need to pick up throughout this letter. Life. Not death, but life. Death and life. Eternal life is what it's called again and again and again. So it's very important that you understand what the Bible means by this term, eternal life. It's important that you understand. What does it mean when it says eternal life? And let me tell you a few things about that. When you hear eternal life, we're not just talking about a future reality, an eternity in the future. We're talking about a present reality. You have eternal life. John 3.16, Jesus said that, right? He says, He who believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now. Not in the future, but now. Not just in the future, but now. It's a present reality. If you have eternal life, you have it now. Or think about how it just said it in chapter 3, verse 15. You know that no murderer has what? Eternal life abiding in him. Eternal life abiding in him. It's not just a future reality. You think eternal life, you shouldn't just think about heaven that is to come. But eternal life is in life of God that you have now. Eternal life is not just spoken of as an extent of life, like the length of life. But is spoken of as a quality of life. It's a quality, it's a kind of life. In John chapter 17, verse three, uh, 2 and 3, Jesus says that. He says, this is eternal life. That you might know God. It's knowing God, knowing Jesus. This is eternal life that you might know God. It's a certain kind of life. We're talking about, when we talk about eternal life, we're talking about the life of God in the soul of men. We're talking about the life of God in our soul. Do you understand that? And so let me give you one more little verse to think about. I want, you to, I want this to be clear to you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 I think does a good job. This says where we were before, before Christ, before we were saved. This is where we were. Ephesians 4 18. Having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart. It says there was one time where we. We. If you're here and you're in Christ. We were alienated from the life of God. And if you're here and you're not in Christ. You were alienated from the life of God. If you're a false convert here. You were alienated from the life of God. But when you come to Christ. And you have him. This is the testimony. That he has given us eternal life. And the life of is in his son. And these things are written. That you might know you have eternal life. The life of God in the soul of men. You're alive. Made alive by his spirit. Okay. So I want you to think about this. John's written a gospel. We're in, we're in John's first letter. But John wrote a gospel. If you go read John chapter 20 verse 31, it speaks about his gospel. And it says that that gospel was written. It was written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing you might have life in his name. So this gospel was written that you might see Christ, believe on him and have life. That gospel is to lead you into this eternal life that you can have. The life of God and the soul of men. But now we're in 1 John, and 1 John is not just written that you might see Christ and believe, but it's written for what reason? 1 John 5.13 says it's written that you might know that you have eternal life. It's teaching you how to take that spiritual pulse to know, am I really alive or am I really dead? We profess Christ, but am I alive or am I dead? It, you can know whether or not you have the life of God in the soul of men. 
You, you can know whether or not you have the life of God in your soul. <clears throat> and so this letter, if you think about all that that I just said, this letter is very helpful in determining true and false conversion. True and false conversion. Now, now why would John want to write a letter about true and false conversion? Why would he want to write a letter to help us uh, determine a spiritual pulse to see if, some, uh, see if we are dead or alive? And, I, and I'll say this quickly, because Dustin already hit this some last week. It's because of false teachers that have come among this group. Okay, If you just read the whole letter and you said, what's the problem here? And I challenge you to do that. You just go read the letter. Get by yourself. And the whole time you're reading, you're asking, what's the problem here? What's the problem here? And you'll realize that he's written. He's written these things because he's coming against some false teachers that have come in. And they're saying false things about Jesus. And many people are leaving and going after these false teachers. You see that in 1 John 2.19, 2.26 about deceivers that have come. And about people who have followed those deceivers. They're saying false things about Christ. And people are actually believing them and following them. And you imagine how this would have affected these people. Here's these people. And they're walking in fellowship together. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And, and, and when they're reading this letter, the church of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, these false teachers come in and they have some, some success. And some of the people that they thought were their brothers and sisters begin to go away after a false Christ. You imagine how this affected them. You imagine the sadness. You imagine some of the questions they might have asked. Like, man, are we wrong? Are we wrong in this? And so John writes this letter and he writes this letter that you might know that you have eternal life, that you might know that you are on the right path. So this letter is a warning to false converts, but it is an encouragement and an assurance to those who are truly in Christ. So here's the section that we're on. Chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Now, with all that background, I want you to listen. Let's read this. I want you to think, okay? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. Listen to the, the glorious words of God. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. So let me begin by just kind of helping you uh, see an outline this here, okay? Here's what you have. If you're glancing at the text with me, verse 5 gives you a foundational fact. I mean, it's just a fact about God, an eternal truth about His attributes. It says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And He just lays out this foundational fact. And then after that foundational fact about God, you get five if statements. Do you see them there? In verse 6, if we say. Verse 7, but if we walk. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 9, if we confess. Verse 10, if we say. So you have these five if statements 
that flow out of this foundational fact that's there in verse 5. And what happens is these if statements are implications. They're they're implying something. If God is light and in Him is no no darkness at all, what does that say about us? What does that say about His followers? It implies something. There's implications. There's five implications to be uh, talked about off of this truth in verse 5. You understand that? So this is the outline that you see here in these verses. Now let's start with this foundational fact in verse 5, okay? I want you to see that what we have here is a positive statement and a negative statement. The positive statement is God is light. And the negative statement is, and in Him is no darkness at all. And really, in a sense, it's kind of a double negative. It's, It's literally, God is light and in Him is no darkness. None. You see what he's getting at? No darkness at all. Now, this is this is an authoritative fact. If you read there in verse five, he says, this is the message which we have heard from him. He says, we heard this from God. We heard this from Jesus. We heard this from him. And so this carries some authority. This fact has authority. And that's where all of our authority comes from, right? If you can speak, you can speak in authority. If you're speaking from the words of God, if you're speaking from the mouth of Christ, and this is a fact that must be proclaimed. He says, this is the message we heard from him, authority, and proclaimed to you. It must be proclaimed. And I'll just say this quickly. Some things are too vital. They're too important. They're too necessary to only be left to suggestion and discussion and mere talk. They're to be proclaimed. And right here, this truth and many other truths that are backed by the authority of God's word are to be heralded and not just merely Suggested to people. The church of Jesus Christ is called the pillar and ground of the truth. We hold up truth from God. So this is the message we heard from Him. And since it has that authority, we proclaim it. We proclaim the truth. We herald the truth. And so here's the fact. God is light. So what does that say about God? If you hear that, God is light. What is that supposed to tell you about God? And I'll tell you this. There's other things that the Bible says, like even in this same letter, it says God is love. And there's things that come to your mind. But right here it says God is light. What's supposed to be coming to your mind when you hear God is light? And I'm telling you, it's supposed to blow you away. When you think about God is light. Here's some things that you need to see when you think about God being called light. You need to be thinking about glory and majesty of God. Now, this is from just taking studying God is light from the whole Bible. This is the context of the whole scriptures. Okay, the glory and majesty of God. First Peter two nine calls it his marvelous light. This is we marvel before this God who is light His marvelous light. First Timothy, chapter six. Let me read this to you. In first Timothy, chapter six, verse 15 and 16. It says this, it speaks about the one who is the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So you need to be thinking about God as light of glory and majesty. Psalm 104 verse one and two says he clothes himself in light. It's like his garments. It's the glory of God, the majesty 
of God here. Acts chapter 9 verse 3, we see God appear. We see Jesus Himself appear to Paul when he was still Saul. And He appears to him and He blinds this man with His light. He falls down and all the men with Him fall down before God in the flesh. Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 and 23. Let me read this to you. God is light. But I saw, it's giving you a glimpse into heaven. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So when you think about God as light, you're thinking about the glory and majesty of God. The kind of light that pierces your eyes. But the kind of light that not only pierces your eyes, but pierces you to your soul. Pierces you to your conscience, to the very heart of a man. God is light. Matthew 17, 2, when Jesus was transfigured, it says His face was shining like the sun. Revelation 1, verse 16 says, His face, His countenance was shining like the sun and John falls down before Him as if dead. God is light. Explains to us glory and majesty of God. But let me give you another piece of that. And this is more, if I'm just looking at the context of this letter, 1 John. God is light is talking about clear revelation of God. Clear revelation. Nothing hidden. Clear revelation about God, because that's what light does, right? Light makes things clear. Light makes things visible. Darkness hides things. But he says, God is light. There's nothing, there's nothing hidden here. You can know what God's word. You got these false teachers saying false things about Christ. And it's hazy about Jesus and, and hazy what God's word says about sin, but not here. He says, God is light. There's nothing hazy. He's not hiding anything. He's revealing it to you. You can know who Christ is. You can know what He says about sin. And there is a mystery. There is a mystery about God, no doubt. But it's not because God hides things. It's because our finite minds cannot contain the infinite one. God is light. He's not hiding these things. He wants you to know who Christ is. And so in the context of this letter, 1 John, this is what we see. He's telling them that God is light. This is not, this is not something that you say, well, we're not sure who Christ is. The false teachers were teaching that He didn't come in the flesh. He said, no, there's no, no haziness around that. He came. God is light. He's revealed Himself. And here's the thing. Let me give you another thing you need to see. God is light. What should you see there? And this is what I think is probably the clearest thing you need to see. This is in the immediate context, okay? So you got God is light. And then what are the five implications of that? And it has to do with us not walking in darkness and sin and impurity. Okay, it speaks about sin and those implications. Therefore, when he says God is light and in him is no darkness, none, he's talking about pure holiness of God, the sinlessness of God, the pure goodness of God, no darkness in him. We, if, if you think about this for a moment, we have trouble now this because what I just said ought to blow you away about God. Not one ounce of darkness in him. Nothing but holy, goodness, righteousness, sinless. That's all he and, and we can't fathom that. We can't fathom that. We might could fathom God and his power picking up a mountain and throwing it into the depths of the sea. We might could fathom that. But we cannot fathom God is light. He's holy. He's righteous. He's good. And there's no darkness in him. 
We can't get it because we know a little bit about our own goodness, the goodness that God has worked in us or in our brothers and sisters. But even that is marred and stained by darkness, bad motives, these sort of things. None of that exists in God. So when you think about His holy righteousness, His, His, His goodness and sinlessness, there's no, when you think about that, you need to know that you cannot fathom this truth. I would apply the same thing. I've got a quote here from A.W. Tozer. And what he said about God's holiness, I think applies to this. God is light. Listen to what he said. Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it and he may... He may fear God's power and admire His wisdom, but His holiness He cannot imagine. He cannot imagine this idea that there would be a God who is light and in Him is no darkness at all. We know nothing of that. Here's maybe a good illustration of what we would be like. Imagine a man in a cave. And his whole life, his whole life he's been in this dark cave. And the only thing he knows about light is a little flickering candle. That's all he knows. When he hears light, he thinks of his little flickering candle. That's all he has. That's all he understands. And he's so thankful for this flickering candle. And he never wants it to go away because it helps him to see. And yet he's got darkness all around him. Even with his flickering candle, he can see darkness all surrounding him. And then imagine suddenly he's thrust into the light of the sun at midday. Imagine the glory in that man's eyes. I didn't know this sort of light existed. I see no darkness at all. And in the same way, this is, this is where we are. We understand goodness and righteousness and sinlessness and purity. We understand it like a little flickering candle in a dark cave. But when we get thrust before God, God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all, we will be full of worship and praise. We cannot imagine this sort of thing. God is light. Now this is a good thing. Because the scripture says He invites us in. He is those who are in Christ. He's taken us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So this is a very, very good thing. So think about this before we actually get to these implications. What do you think the implication should be? If God is light, he's pure holiness, pure righteousness in him is no darkness at all. What would you expect to see? What would you expect to see in the lives of people? Who are in fellowship with Him. It means they're saved. What, what do you expect to see? If God is light and there's no darkness at all. What does that imply about people that would be in communion with Him? In fellowship with Him? In partnership with Him? What would you think that would mean? And so we're going to move now to these, these implications. Okay? So the implications of verse 6 through 10. These five if statements. Before we get into each statement. I want to mention something to you. There's two categories. You could break this down. These five if statements, these implications. You could break them down into two categories. Okay. 
First category would be uh, sound living or false living. The second category would be sound believing or sound doctrine or false doctrine. Okay? So verse 6 and 7 gives us false living. Verse 8 through 10 gives us false doctrine, in particular about sin. Okay? If you're kind of glancing at it, you see that. So what we're seeing here is true Christians live... It's false or sound living. True Christians live in a certain way and true Christians believe in a certain way. We're talking about sound doctrine. You can't, you can't live in darkness and say that you have fellowship with God who is light. That's verse 6 and 7. And you can't believe false things about Jesus and false things about sin and claim to have fellowship with God who is light. That's verses 8 through 10. Now, these, these implications, I want you to think about this. These two categories, they're mentioned as charges against the false teachers who are coming in. I mean, this is giving you some insight into those false teachers coming in and leading people astray. Okay, so these, these are directly waged against the false teachers and those who are led astray by the false teachers. So, so we know that, but, the, but the, the specifics are not given all. You don't get an abundant amount of specifics over what exactly were those false teachers teaching. You know some things, but you don't know the, the very exact specifics of what they were teaching, okay? And so here's what I mean. For example, they say, they say we have no sin. Okay, that's verse 8. See verse 8? If we say we have no sin. You know this is something going on in the people that he's right to. We say we have no sin. Well, in what way were they teaching that? Exactly how was that coming out? This idea of we have no sin. Here's one thing, here's one thing I just want you to think about with that. We know, and, and we got some of this from what Dustin taught last week. We know some things about history and about what was going on in the false teaching that time. So let me just give you an example, okay? So if the false teachers, if there was something going on there to where they were dividing flesh and spirit, they were dividing it up and flesh is automatically evil and spirits automatically good. Is that what they're saying? And when they say we have no sin, are they trying to get at we have no sin because that's our flesh and it's automatically bad and we have spirit and it's automatically good. So this is me trying to think through like what exactly were they teaching? OK, but here's what I want to do. I want you to see this. We don't get the exact specifics on those things, but I think John purposefully deals with these issues in a more general way. He purposefully deals with these issues in a more general way. He really takes a, a, a get to the root of the issue type approach to dealing with these two categories, false living and false doctrine. OK, well, now why would he do that? Why would he take a more? I mean, he even he takes such a general way that he even roots these implications in the eternal truth, the unchanging truth that God is light. This is what he goes after. So and why would he do that? And I say this because these same issues of false living, you profess to know God, but in words you deny him or false believing are going to resurface again and again and again, generation after generation after generation. They resurface and yet sometimes they take on different forms. Let me give you a, a, just kind of a picture of that. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, now how could that false doctrine, we have no sin, it's a minimizing of the sin of humans. Now how could that kind of false doctrine uh, be fleshed out in different ways. Let me give you an idea here, okay? 
Number one, it could be the most, this would be very obvious, right? It'd be something like this. Somebody says, I'm just sinless. It's just sinless perfection. I am just sinless. I have no sin. That'd be a really direct way and a pretty easy one to pick up on, right? Easy false teaching to pick up on there. Or number two, that's a little bit less obvious. It could be like I mentioned, the false teachers of those days who divide flesh from spirit. Flesh is evil. Spirit is good. So I have no sin because that's just flesh and I'm spirit. Okay. Could be that. And here's something that's more deceptive and even more common in our day. I want you to think about this. More deceptive, more common. What about simply not feeling your need for a savior? Maybe you would never say with your mouth, I have no sin or we have no sin. Maybe you never say that, but you don't feel your need for the Savior. You don't feel the weight. You've never felt the weight of sin, the weight of guilt and sin like we ought to feel to show that we need a Savior. We are in need of Him. And this would be a version, a, a, a sneaky version of we have no sin. True Christians don't say I'm not that bad. I'm not all that bad. True Christians say, oh, wretched man that I am. I praise God for Jesus Christ who came for me. You get what I'm saying here? So these kind of false teachings about sin, this minimizing of sin can resurface. And so I think John deals with this in a very, in kind of a general sense and even roots it back into an eternal truth in verse five. Okay, so before we move on at the root of these two categories or at the root of these implications, that separate a true convert from a false convert at the very root is this. Real Christians live it out. That's verse 6 and 7. And real Christians agree with God about their sin. And that's verse 8 through 10. Let's look at this first implication. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, that's a lie. It's not true. Did you know that it was possible to have a false profession of faith? Did you know that was possible? That's what it says right here. It says, if we say, we're professing something, if we say we have fellowship with Him and His fellowship is linked into salvation. You can see that to verse 3. He says, we're, we're declaring these things to you that you might have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. So if you say that you're saved, you say that you're born again, you say that you have fellowship with Him. And many people say this, but is it true? There is a such, there is such a thing as false profession. Titus 1.16, it says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. Being disqualified, abominable. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says they look at him and he says, not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is, a, there is such a thing as false profession, meaning you profess to know God, but you don't. You don't. Now, how do you know if you're a false convert? Well, verse 6 said it right here. It said, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, walk is a pattern of life. Your pattern of life is towards darkness. It's sin. You walk in this. Or you, you can go ahead and in, in the chapter 2, verse 8. You see in verse 8, it says the darkness is passing away. What does this mean to walk in darkness? It says the darkness is passing away. And then verse 17 says 
The world is passing away and the lust of it. So here's the idea. The darkness is passing away. The world is passing away. The darkness, the world. We're talking about worldliness. You walk in nothing but worldliness. And it's a sign of being a false convert. You feel more at place in the world than you do with God and His people. You have more desires for the things of the world than you have desires for God and the things of God. This, this walking in darkness, how do you know if you're a false convert? Walking in darkness is not practicing the truth. That's what it said in verse 6, right? We, have, we say we have fellowship with Him. We walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. We don't practice the truth. There's no heart for the truth of God's Word. And there's definitely no heart to obey the truth of God's Word. And this is a sign of being... A false convert. And this is so serious. And I want you to feel how serious what we're talking about is. You think about how many people that are actually false converts. But they comfort themselves with false notions. It's like, it's like they comfort themselves when they ought not to be comforted. They comfort themselves with things like this. Well, I, I, I prayed to receive Christ a long time ago. But what about now? Do you look dead? Or do you look alive? They say, well, I was baptized. Or, or, you know, something changed back then. Yeah, but what about now? Don't give me your birth certificate. Are you alive? Are you breathing? Is, your, is there a spiritual pulse in you? Somebody says, yeah, but I, know, but I know I believe. It says believe and I know I believe. Yeah, but it says, but all who believe have eternal life. That means if you believe, if you really believe, then that means the life of God is in your soul. It means you see you're alive. You're not dead. Now 1 John 1.6, it might seem kind of harsh, right? You say you have fellowship with Him, but you walk in darkness and He says, liar. You are lying. Your words, when you say you profess to know Him, you are lying. And doesn't that sound harsh? But I want you to see that Christ did the same thing. John chapter 8. Listen to this. In John chapter 8, Jesus Verse 30. And he spoke these words and many believed in him. Verse 31. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. If you abide in my word. You are my disciples indeed. He says if you abide in my word. You're truly. You're really my disciples. And you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. And they begin to say some things about. Uh, we're, we're, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus tells them, yes, you have. Everyone who has sinned is in bondage to sin. You see, Christ is saying similar things here. They say this in verse 39. They say, they answer and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus gives them an if statement. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You see this? He said, you say you're children of Abraham, but you're not. If you were, you would do the works of Abraham. Or go, go ahead just a little bit. Verse, right there in verse 41 at the end. He said, they say, they say, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus gives them another if statement. He says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. He said, you're saying God is your father, but if he was, you love me. You love me. Do you see, the, you see the if statement? You see the implication he's making? Even down into verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you're not of God. Why is it? 
Why is it that I have no heart for the Word of God, no heart for the truth of God? And could it be that it's because you're not of God that instead you're a false convert? It's very serious, right? It's very serious that false converts don't comfort themselves falsely until they go to hell forever. Let me give you the second implication. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. I love this. Is there evidence that you are walking in the light? Is it? Then listen to me, true convert. This is not meant just to, this letter is not meant to go after false converts. This letter is meant to encourage you. Is there evidence that you walk in the light? Be encouraged. You know what that means about you? Now, obviously, walking in the light is not sinless perfection. You can just keep reading ahead, right? Verse 8 If you say you have no sin, you've deceived yourself. So when he says walk in the light, we're not talking about sinless perfection here. But but what do you do when you sin? Do you bring it into the light of God? Do you do that? When you sin, is there is there a hatred of your sin? Do you bring it before God and strive to turn away from it? I want you to think about this. Think about this. Let's take that same analogy, a living person and a dead person. How does a living person respond to something that's trying to kill them? How do they respond? Something tries, if you're a living person and something is coming at you to kill you, you move, you run, you push away. You might be wounded, but you don't like it. You get away from it. You fight against it. You get out of there. Now, how does a dead person respond to something that's coming to kill them? They do nothing. They lay there because they're dead. They de- it doesn't matter if something's coming to kill them. And in the same way, this is like sin. What do you do when you do sin? Are you dead or are you alive? When you sin, when you sin against God, because this doesn't mean sinless perfection, but when you do, are you like the alive one saying, I don't like this, I'm convicted about this, I'm pushing away from this, or does it do nothing? You just sit there like a dead person. I want you to think about that. And then think about this, true convert. So everybody here is a true convert. Listen, you ought to be encouraged by that. Is there something in you that hates sin? Something in you that don't like what it does to you. You don't like that, that, that you've sinned against God and you want to turn away from it and you strive to get away. Is that you? True convert. Be encouraged by it. This is written that you might know that you have eternal life. That's eternal life in you. Do you tend to love the things that God loves? Do you tend to hate the things that God hates? Do you obey God? True convert. This should encourage you. This is the life of God in your soul. Now notice the statement in verse 7. If we walk in the light as He's in the light, listen, we have fellowship with one another. Now that's a surprising statement, right? We have fellowship with one another. What did you expect it to say? If we walk in the light as He's in the light, you expect it to say, we have fellowship with God, right? Why does it say with one another? What do we learn from this? And here's what we learn. We learn that you cannot separate these two things. Fellowship with the people of God and partnership with the people of God, partnership with God himself, fellowship with the people of God, fellowship with God himself. You can't separate these two things. The same thing happens over there in verse three. He says, I declare these things to you that you might have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with God. You can't separate 
These two things. So if you have no heart for the people of God, you have no fellowship with God. First John chapter three, verse 14 says this. We know we've passed from death to life. How do you know? Because we love the brethren. What kind of people do you gravitate toward? What kind of people do you tend to love to be around? Love to sharpen. What kind of people? The people of God or the people of the world? And, 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 uh, and this should be a great encouragement to every true convert here. And you're thinking about this going, yes, thank you, Lord Jesus. You have worked this in me and you should be encouraged. This is written that you might know that that's eternal life abiding in you. Now, verse 7 says, if we walk in the light, it speaks about we have that fellowship if we walk in the light. Does this mean walking in the light earns you? You walk in the light and you earn salvation. You walk in the light and you earn fellowship with God. Is that what that means? And the answer is absolutely not. Look at the end of the statement there. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, this verse... Verse 6 and 7, these two verses, it kills two very, very dangerous things. It kills cheap grace. You say you have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness. It's not true. And it also kills works-based salvation. It's not you doing this thing where you walk in the light that saves your soul. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. It kills both sides of that. Think about that. The blood, it says the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the Son of God. Blood. He's talking about his death. So think about the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. And it says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how many of our sins? All sins. So if you're here and you've repented and you've turned to Christ, Christ Jesus the Savior in faith. And so he's your Lord and you're a true convert. That means every sin you have. It wasn't dealt with because you worked your way out of it. It was dealt with at the cross where his blood was shed. That every single one of your sins, imagine it. It says all of them, every single one of them laid on Christ Jesus at the cross. He died for you. He laid down his life for you. That's why he came. He didn't come to condemn you. He came that you might have life. The work of Jesus Christ at the cross is what saves a man, not your own works. And that's plain from this verse. Walking in the light is just comforting evidence for everyone here who's a true convert that you really have been washed in His blood. Praise God. Third implication. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's kind of like this. He says, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from all sin. Verse 7. Oh, by the way, speaking of sin, verse 8. Speaking of sin, if you say you have no sin, you are deceived. And the truth is not in you. So now we're getting into the doctrine of sin. Now we're not just talking about your actions, walking in the light or walking in darkness. But we're talking about a way of thinking and believing and responding to sin. This is what we're talking about now. When you believe, think about this, when you believe false things about Jesus, and they were teaching false things about Jesus. We see that in chapter 4, verse 1, two, 1 through 3, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, that Jesus wasn't the Christ. When you believe false things about Jesus, you will automatically believe false things about sin. And that's what's getting confronted right here. He said, what do you mean? 
Well, well, they didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. They didn't believe that He actually bled and died on that cross, that He was removed and somebody else went to that cross. You understand that? And so, and so if that's true and Christ didn't die on the cross, the next question, here's the question. What happens to our sin? What happens to our sin? And the route that these people take is, we have no sin. Bad idea. Bad idea. Now, as I said earlier, these false teachers, these false teachers, they may have been saying, I have no sin, meaning my flesh is separate from my spirit. Flesh is always evil, that sort of thing. Or they may have been saying, I have no sin, as in, since I came to know God, I've never sinned since then. Maybe that's what they mean. But what we know is at the very heart of this is they do not agree with God about sin. They don't agree with God about their own sinfulness. And this has happened in different forms throughout many generations as I spoke of a moment ago. I mean, I remember being, let me give you a couple examples. I remember being at Mississippi State and a guy named Michael Vigna would come and he would tell me he had no sin since he had so-called gotten saved. That's a real thing. Now that one's obvious though, right? Nobody's getting tricked by that in here. But let me show you an, another way that it, that it tends to, to kind of to, to show itself, okay? Think about somebody, and this is very typical. Some, you come to somebody, you begin to talk to them about God and about judgment, and they say, oh, man, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. I'm, I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an overall good person. God knows my heart. Now, essentially, they might not ever with their lips say, I have no sin. But that's what they're saying. When they say, God knows my heart, they don't realize that that's bad news. Not good news. God knows my heart means He knows my sin. But they think they have no sin. They think they're good. They minimize sin. And that is the root of what's going on in verse 8 through 10. Okay? So I want you to think about this. We need to agree with God about sin. Everybody believe that? We need to agree with God. So what is the true doctrine of sin? What is the true doctrine of sin? And, and I think it's important that every person here agrees with what God says about sin. You need to agree in your heart about these things. I mean, you can intellectually believe the doctrine of sin and still go to hell forever, never seeing your desperate need for the Savior. You can say with your lips... Yes, I'm a sinner. So you, you intellectually agree with that doctrine. And yet you feel in your heart no need for the Savior. You feel no need for the one who came to die for you. So you don't feel a need there. And so you can go straight to hell without, with, with, with agreeing with this intellectually. So I want you to agree with God from the heart about the doctrine of sin. So let me give you a few things very quickly. Think about the wretchedness of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. This is the one I quoted earlier. When Paul looks up and says, Oh, wretched man that I am. If you, if you agree with God about sin, you have to be able to say this about yourself. You're not a little sinner. You didn't mess up a little bit. You're not just struggling. Oh, wretched man that I am is what Paul says. Romans chapter 3. Let me read this. Romans chapter 3. I want to read verse 12 through 18. This is what God says. If you disagree with anything here about yourself, you're not seeing it right. Look at verse 12. They have all turned aside. That's all of us. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. You say, wait a minute. I've done some good. Don't disagree with God 
Don't disagree with God. There's none who does good. No, not one. Listen, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. Poison of ass is under their lips. You say, man, that sounds really bad. That's right. And it's me and you. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man, that sounds bad. And it is bad. We are desperate sinners. We are in desperate need of Christ because we are desperate sinners. Keep going. Proverbs chapter 6. Listen, I want you to feel the weight of sin, the doctrine of sin. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. He hates these things. Yes, seven of them are an abomination to Him. You say, oh, I bet I don't have anything on this list. A proud look. God hates it. You ever, you ever had pride? You ever, I'm struggling with pride. You're not struggling. It's wicked. It's evil. God hates it. A lying tongue. You ever lie? God hates it. Do you see the seriousness of this? Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Sin is serious. The doctrine of sin. You're not a little sinner. You haven't messed up. You didn't just simply kind of fall into sin. You are in need of a Savior. Desperate sinner before God. Romans 7, 18 says there is nothing good in us. Paul says, as for me and my flesh, nothing good dwells. Really? Nothing? Not one thing? Not, you can't find? No, nothing. Nothing good in our flesh. James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, if you've committed one of these sins, let's say, let's say by chance you've kept the whole law, yet you stumble in one point. It says you, you are guilty of all. Every sin you can find in this book, you find rape in there, you stand guilty of it. Why? Because it said if you've kept the whole thing and broken one, you stand guilty of all. All of them. We're in real bad trouble because we've broken way more than one. Way more than one. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, uh, 1 through 3 says, We are sinners at the very core of who we are. By nature, children of wrath. Psalm 51 5 says, You were brought forth in iniquity and in sin your mother conceived you. From conception, this is who you are at the very core. Not only have you messed up, you know, sinned against God, rebelled against Him, but at the core of who you are, it's just who you are. It's who I am. So we are in desperate need of a Savior. So don't be deceived. Don't minimize sin. If we say, 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, if we minimize it and say we have no sin, we are deceived and the truth of God is not in us. And that's the heart of what's happening here. It's the heart of what's happening here. Let's go to the fourth implication. Verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is light. And those who come to the light, their deeds are exposed. They bring those deeds to the light. They become a confessing people. Now to confess here, 
To confess here is to agree with God. It means to agree with God. And then you, you agree with God about your sin. You agree with God and you make it known. It's to confess. This means that true Christians, they have experienced and they continue to experience conviction from God. That's God speaking to you. Gives you something to agree with. True Christians experienced and still experience conviction from God. That's God speaking and confession when a man agrees with God and makes it known. I agree, Lord. I agree with you, God, about my sin. So then a true convert believes rightly about his sin. A true convert is in a regular pattern then of conviction and confession and walk in the light. And listen to me. True convert is here right now. Be encouraged by this. It's not that you, it's not that you're caught in the sinlessness. You can't do it. But when it does come, is there a conviction and confession before God and a walking in the light? And that ought to encourage your soul. This is written that you might know you have eternal life. Now, if this is you, 1 John 1 9, what does it say? He is faith. If you do this, if you confess our if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that. Forgiveness means your sin is a debt that got covered by His blood. And cleansed. He cleansed you or purified you. Means your sin is a stain that got wiped clean by His blood. Christ Jesus came to take your sin onto Himself so you could be forgiven. So that you could be cleansed. And so, then the question is, will He really do that? Will God really count those who come to Christ in repentance and faith? Will He really count them forgiven and pure? Will he count them forgiven and clean? And I say yes, because verse 9 says what? He is faithful and just. He's faithful and just. God is faithful. He always does what he says he will do. When he said, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, he will not lie. You turn to Him in faith, He will save you and eternal life will indwell you. And He's just. He's just, meaning God has already satisfied His just wrath on the Savior. That means in light of God's justice, His wrath is supposed to come barreling down on every person in the room. But instead, if you're here and you're a true convert, your sin's been lifted off of you, put onto the Savior, and the wrath of God came barreling down on Him instead. And God is just. He's not going to repunish you for a sin that's already been dealt with. Our God is faithful and our God is just. And those who agree with God about their sin and their confessors before Him, they'll be forgiven. Verse 10, fifth, last implication. Just got a short, quick thing to say here. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Now this is a big deal. Now it's very similar to verse 8, right? But it's got more intensity hooked onto it. It's very similar to verse 8. I mean, verse 8 and verse 10, essentially, I know they have some different tenses there, but, but they're essentially saying the same thing. Okay? If we say we have not sinned, the same thing. But here's the added intensity. You make Him a liar. Not only are you deceived, but you make God a liar. You minimize sin, then not only are you deceived, but you make the Almighty One who is faithful and true, and you make Him out to be a liar. And this raises the stakes, right? This raises the stakes. A false profession 
A false prayer. If you're here and you have a false profession, you're, you, you profess to know God, but you walk in darkness. You profess to know God, but you don't really agree with God about your sin. You see no need for the Savior. If that's you, not only do you deceive yourself, but you go to hell forever calling God liar. This raises the stakes. You make Him a liar. Let's move to an application. Simple application. The application, one of the applications is this. It's first all, and I want to encourage you to do this. Examine yourself. We're told to do this in, I believe, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It says, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Did you know you're commanded to do that? I know many of you have heard me say that before, but some of you that haven't heard me say this before, listen, you are commanded, examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Now, if that question even sounds weird to you, it means, it means you need to wake up. If you think, oh, what do you mean examine? Of course I'm in the faith. If that's your response, listen to me. The Bible, not me, says examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. So let me ask you this. Are you a false convert? Test your own heart. Here's two, two qualities from, from, a verse, from this passage of Scripture we just looked at. Here's two qualities of a false convert. Walking in darkness. So number one, walking in darkness, but professing to know God. Number two, minimizing sin in their lives. Now let me say this. Oftentimes, minimizing sin in your life, how does, that, how does that express itself? How does it show itself? It shows itself in that you have zero pursuit of holiness. Zero pursuit of growth. You're not going after holiness. You're not going after growth. Why? You think you're fine. You're essentially saying, I have no sin. I'm alright. No need to grow. No need to push into holiness in my walk with God. Listen, that's not... That, that may be evidence. May be evidence that you just need to turn back to the Lord. Maybe He's turning you back right now. But it may be evidence that you never knew Him. That you're a false convert. Take your own spiritual pulse. Do you feel a spiritual heartbeat? Is the life of God, examine yourself, is the life of God, the eternal life, is it in your soul? In regards to God's Word, is the life of God in you in regards to the way you deal with God's Word? Is the life of God in you in the way you deal with God's people? The life of God in you and the way you deal with God's mission, is anything there, just God Himself, is the life of God, are you awake to Him? Test yourself. You need to be warned by these truths. These truths we just read. If you're a false convert, you must be warned by these truths. Don't walk out of here and not be warned. But this is mainly not written to false converts, right? This is written for the assurance of those who are true converts. So what it says, I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. So let me ask you that. Are you a true convert? I want you to be encouraged. Are you a true convert here? Here's two realities in the life of a true convert. And they might seem contradictory. Here's two realities from our passage. Number one, they walk in the light. But number two, they know their own sinfulness. Now, doesn't that seem almost contradictory? They walk in the light, oh, but they know their sinfulness. And yet these two slam together in the life of a true Christian. Do you walk in the light as evidenced is it evidenced by your pursuit of holiness, your, your, your hatred for sin? Is it evidenced there? Do you see that? You're walking in the light. Do you know your own sinfulness? 
And that too is, 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 is expresses itself in your pursuit of holiness and godliness, pursuit of His Word. Because when there's no pursuit of God, what, what makes someone, what makes a Christian say, man, I want to go after Christ's likeness? What makes him say that? He knows he's not there yet. He knows the sin that is in him. He knows that. And so he wants to push away from it and go after Christ's likeness. So listen, true convert, if that's the evidence, this is, this is evidence of a true convert that you walk in the light and, and you know your own sinfulness as evidenced by your pursuit of godliness. And for you, I want to say, be encouraged. This means you're on the right path. Be encouraged by this. Last thing I'll say in application here. I would encourage you to apply these truths to evangelism. If you're here and you're in Christ and there's some kind of desire in you to, to make Christ known to a lost world, you can't stand the thought of somebody going to hell forever. And you can't stand the, or you, you love the glory of someone worshiping Christ Jesus the Savior as your King. And so you, you want to evangelize. And maybe you got fears. Maybe you got things that you got to push through and it's hard. But you want to evangelize. You want to make Christ known in this world. Okay? So if that's you, let's apply these truths to evangelism. Okay? I want you to think about it. These truths of true and false convert, that there are people that profess God that are true converts, excuse me, and there are people that profess Christ and are false converts. These truths apply everywhere, but surely you see how they especially apply in the culture you live in right now. Surely you see this, right? So what I want you to do is I want you to think about what we just talked about in true and false convert. And I want you to apply it to your culture and evangelism in your culture, in your workplace, among your family. I want you to apply it there. OK, we, we heard uh, just in the sovereignty of God, I got to hear all, all those people that became members of grace. I got to hear all their testimonies yesterday. And, and every person that's ever become a member of this church, I've heard their testimony of how God saved them. You know, what you hear over and over and over and over and over and over again. Even yesterday, we heard it many times. It's, well, I thought I was saved. But I was walking in darkness. And the reality is, is I didn't know God. And then, and then Christ shined down His glory. And I saw Christ for who He was. And God saved my soul. In this culture, that's the story again and again and again. And listen, listen to me. There's going to be unique differences in people's testimony. We saw it yesterday when these people talking about how God had saved their soul. And it was unique how God had dealt with each person differently. And that's awesome. But there is a common thread that's the same for all. And here's two of those common threads. Every person, every person who is saved, who is a true convert, they have experienced an awakening to their sin, a conviction over their sin. And they know that they need a Savior. Okay, that's what we saw in our text, right? And we also see a life change. We always see a life change. Can you think about somebody going from no spirit of God within them to the spirit of God that, that indwells them? Can that happen and life not change? It may not look the same for all, but there's some sort of walking in darkness to walking in the light. So I want you to think about this, okay? Most people around you or so many people around you, many, many lost people around you, they fit into this description. They say they walk in the light. They say they have fellowship with God, but they walk in darkness. They say, oh, God knows my heart. Everything's fine. I'm not all that bad. They say things like this and people that are all around you. And I want to encourage you to take the truths that we're looking at today and put it before the lost world. Now, is the overall point to help them to see they're lost? 
No, I hope not. The overall point is you want to lead them to the Savior, to Christ. But sometimes to do that, you need to show them this whole idea that our culture is ignorant of, of false and true convert. Now, it's going to take boldness, right? It'll take boldness for you to share these kind of truths with people that are false converts to lead them to Christ. But God can make you bold. And it'll take love for these people, right? It doesn't take any love to ignore their souls and know that there's a problem here, that maybe they're a false convert. It it takes zero love to ignore them. And say, okay, yeah, we believe that's fine. It takes takes no love. But it takes love to be willing to press in to maybe a hard conversation. To press into something that you think might not land well, but it might land well. That's not easy, but it's going to take love. And I think God can fill His church. He can fill brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church with love for people and boldness to do this. Because the culture you live in, yes, you're going to come across people and say, I don't believe God whatsoever. And yeah, you're going to come across people and say, I'm a Muslim. or I'm a, you know, You're going to come across that. But so much of what you're going to come across here is false conversion. Everybody agree with that? So take these truths to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can open your word and talk through these things. And I just pray, God, for your help, for divine help, God. Help that that can't be attributed to men. Help from on high. God, I pray that you would help and that you would take anyone here who doesn't truly know you, God, And Lord, I pray that You would would burden their soul. I pray, God, You would disturb them. And if they are disturbed right now, God, I pray they'd come running to Your cross where You laid down Your life for them. Draw them into You and save them, Lord, please. God, I pray that You take every single thing that they put up, Lord, and and they they go after it rather than You. I pray they'd cast it far aside. They'd put it away from them, Lord, and see that it's nothing, it's meaningless compared to You where fullness of joy is found. God, save save lost souls in here. God, I pray that you you wouldn't allow anybody to be disturbed that shouldn't be disturbed. God, I pray for your saints, Lord, your children, your sons and your daughters that you love so much, Lord, that you said you rejoice over them with singing. I pray, God, that they... Myself included, God, would find so much assurance and comfort in knowing that they have eternal life, even from looking at these verses today. Let your word, God, do what you intend it to do. And God, please help us as a church as we go out into a lost world. Help us, Lord. God, I pray that you help us to be bold. Help us to be full of love for people, Lord. Such a love and such a boldness, God, that moves past awkwardness or hard conversations, Lord. To dig into the souls of men and women. God, make us a vow. Pray what my brother prayed earlier, Lord. You said that if we follow you, you'd make us fishers of men. God, make us fishers of men right in the midst of this culture where so many profess to know you, God, and they don't. Lord Jesus, help us. And I praise you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.